Welcome to the Groundbreaking Guide to Third-Party and Supply Chain Risk Management, How Exeger's Trades Framework Revolutionizes Third-Party Risk Management and Supply Chain Risk Management in 2021 and Beyond. In this special six-part podcast series sponsored by Exeger on the Trades Framework, we will look at how the Trades Framework is a cutting-edge but actionable blueprint to build a modern third-party and supply chain risk management program. Over the next six episodes, I will be speaking with Exeter's experts as we go through each layer of the trades framework at the tactical, program, and strategic levels. We will put a spotlight on transparency into your current state with Skylar Chai and Tim Stone, discuss risk methodology with Teresa Cambabasso and Matt Hayden, assess current risks with Laura Tolchin and Peter Jackson, determine mitigations with Carrie Wibben and Aaron Narva, evaluate the trades framework uplift with Brandon Daniels and Josh Teal, and end with Brandon Daniels and Erica Peters, who will give a review of supplier monitoring and close out with how government and critical industries are leading the charge using the trades framework to outpace threats and vulnerabilities while minimizing third-party risk management gaps. In this episode three, we look at assessing current risks with Laura Tulchin, ESG Solutions Lead, and Peter Jackson, Director of Supply Chain Risk Management, Data Management, and Innovation. Number three in the trades framework is assess current risks. Peter, what can you tell us about the A in the trades acronym? So, Tom, until this point, we've been talking about planning and preparing your supply chain risk program. Now it's time to carry out the plan. So we've discussed transparency. We've prepared our methodology. Now we're going to put those preparatory steps into motion. The more robust your preparation, the easier this step will be. But don't be concerned if you find it necessary to go back and forth between like this step and the other stages. Sometimes we have expectations about the data that's available, or we make assumptions about overall risk, and those are quickly disproven as we uh, you know, move to actually assess our risk. When that happens, we can simply back up and iterate on the planning stages to find another approach. This will be especially true if your scrim program is less mature or less robust. Um, and so you might need to iterate a bit as you gather results from this step and see what actually comes out of your methodology. Matt and Teresa talked about our final scrim assessment as this crown jewels. And it is, but no plan is perfect. So if you find yourself going back to revise your plan, think of it like you're adding in a couple more diamonds of rubies as you move through the actual risk assessment. Yeah, thanks, Peter. So just thinking about how this really works in practice and what, what assessing the current risks means. So we we always advise um, to really start at the strategic level. And really, you know, assessing our current risks, we need to understand what the outputs of that, that will pertain. And so, you know, we uh, see a risk appetite statement as absolutely critical to defining the workflow that comes out of the risk assessment. Designing this risk appetite statement might be part of the previous step as discussed by Teresa and Matt, but it might also be informed out of what actually comes out of the risk assessment. So how do you use that uh, risk appetite statement, Laura? Yeah, exactly. So the risk appetite statement will give you guidelines about what is acceptable risk and what is not. 
And so it's really important to put in thresholds in metrics to make the review and the results of the risk assessment actually actionable. You want to put in key risk indicators or KRIs that tell you when things are moving toward risk unacceptability and then what to do. So ultimately, the risk assessment and the risk appetite statement are going to strategically define a workflow for you. Um, and, and this should ensure that the risk model is meeting your actual business needs and your risk profile. In other, way, in other words, really align with the way that your organization sees the world. And so this assessment of the risk is going to be responsive to the framework designed above. And as Peter said, you know, the outputs and, and sort of that iteration between the methodology and actually what is being risk assessed may require a few iterations, um, which is absolutely fine and should be part of the expectation of actually using the risk methodology and implementing it through the assessment of current risks. So how do you put the risk assessment in practice at the program level? So at the program level, now we buckle down and we collect, analyze, and synthesize the data that we need to identify the risks uh, that we have and fit them into our risk appetite. Something to keep in mind as we carry out this, the plan at the program level, there are both weak points and strong points in any supply chain. Uh, for one customer that we were looking at, we were looking for um, companies with a very specific capability um, to repair uh, circuit card ships. And one of the things that we found was it wasn't enough just to find companies that uh, were being used by this program that perhaps uh, should have been replaced or should be um, had some risks to be mitigated. One of the things we found was that actually it was we found some companies that were doing things the right way that had a really well diversified set of capabilities, they had a diversified supply chain, and we were able to elevate those particular companies and then find characteristics about those companies that we could then suggest to our customer they find more companies like that. In other words, we weren't only finding risks in the supply chain, we were finding strengths in the supply chain, and then finding lessons learned for how to replicate those strengths. And so that at the program level, that's the right place where we can actually dig into the strengths of a supply chain and try to find out how we can replicate that um, across the program. The program level is also the perfect place um, to identify uh, value creation. So identifying inefficiencies in the supply chain that we might be able to correct or adjust. Uh, also finding places where we might have something uh, uh, a weak spot in the supply chain that we can work around. Uh, we can, although the supply chain risk is focused on reducing vulnerabilities, there's also tremendous potential here for discovering efficiencies and creating significant value from your supply chain. Peter, if I could follow up on that point, that uh, over the past year, I think many uh, business executives, compliance professionals, and, and others have really focused on the changing nature of risk in their supply chain, of course, because of the pandemic. Does this format or does this part of the trade framework have the flexibility to reassess, uh, not so much at a moment's notice, but when you have a significant event such as the uh, COVID-19 global pandemic? One of the things you should be thinking about, uh, both in some of the previous steps, but especially you'll find it most applicable here, is... <clears throat> What are ways that we can adjust our, our previous framework? What is the data that we're actually seeing here? Uh, what are the things we can actually identify? 
So when you're in the planning stage, you're definitely looking at um, sort of from an academic standpoint, you have your sense of the universe and you have your own assumptions about your supply chain and where the risks are. But when you're at this level, you're actually faced with the data that you have available to you. And like you said, sometimes you're faced with an outlier situation that doesn't fit in with your model. And so this is the perfect place to identify um, going back to your model, taking the data and saying, this is the data that I actually know. So not what risks would I like to identify, but let's be realistic and say, what risks can I actually identify? What do I actually have the data to support? What are the arguments I can actually make based on the observations that I can actually provide here? And at the tactical level, one of the biggest concerns I hear from business executives is when you have a framework, they often feel like it's put on with uh, really no flexibility, that it's one size fits all, and their company may be a little different. Uh, First of all, is the trades framework locked into that? And then does it have the flexibility uh, at the tactical level? Absolutely, Tom. And that, you know, that's a really fair concern that we hear from our customers as well. Now, as Peter was describing, really, we really do see this sort of ability to adapt and iterate as part of the framework uh, itself. It's really built into the framework. And especially at the tactical level, we understand that implementing the risk assessment may mean different things for different entities or different parts of your business, really based upon supply chain criticality. You know, there may be certain types of suppliers that are subject to more stringent data collection, which leads to a more comprehensive risk model, for example, bringing in larger swaths of data or more enhanced due diligence, essentially. And that might be really just due to some inherent criticality that that supplier has within a supply chain. You might, with that in mind, you know, you might actually want to perform a a full risk assessment within a given supplier relationship. Um, And this is sort of defined by the risk model design as described by Matt and Teresa. And it really kind of speaks to how you tier your universe in terms of criticality and how you tier your population of suppliers. So there might be certain suppliers, certain high-risk jurisdictions, certain industries, certain products that are especially critical to you or pose, you know, real supply chain risk, whether that's logistically, uh, product provision-wise, or really geopolitically in any way. Um, that may require single focus risk assessments to bring that data into an overall program review. So we very much understand that that type of sort of tiering or flexibility or even iteration in terms of assessing criticality um, is necessary to businesses when actually applying this framework in the real world. And we, you know, we really see it as a built-in inherent part of, of implementing this framework and giving that sense of flexibility and understanding that from a criticality perspective, and really at the tactical level, not all suppliers are created equal. Uh, yeah, this is also the place where you're most likely to discover the need to iterate on your supply chain risk model design. Uh, the tactical level is where you can best identify any persistent information gaps or determine the need for data orchestration. It's also important to keep in mind the outputs of your assessment are going to be responsive to your risk priorities. So if you care most about uh, foreign ownership and control of your suppliers, for example, your outputs will reflect a focus on ownership and foreign investment. On the other hand, if you're most concerned about counterfeit and spoofing activities, your outputs should focus on source provenance and authenticity markers. This is something that Exeter has considered quite closely in the past couple of years as we've moved from 
working largely in the banking and compliance industries with a lot of finance uh, markers and, and sensibilities into more of a government-dominated space where uh, a lot of the concerns reflect some of the traditional counterintelligence markers instead of uh, financial intelligence. And so that's something that Essager has been working on um, significantly is as we move from uh, one area of sort of a finance sector compliance framework uh, and develop more of the defense and aerospace and government sector compliance frameworks and risk management frameworks, we've had to modify how we look at these supply chain risks and the things that we actually care about, the things that we're capturing. And as we do that, we're picking up new sources, we're reaching out to different data models, we're identifying new places where we can gather information so that our outputs are responsive to what the risk model that we've developed actually requires. And finally, it's critical to keep in mind, we aren't just assessing for the sake of assessing. Um, I can't emphasize this enough that, especially at the tactical level right here, it's always uh, important to keep in mind how the organization can use the work we're doing and put our outputs to immediate use. If our findings are more strategic in nature, for example, the changes that we find may be more sweeping organizational solutions, or if our findings are more tactical, uh, maybe they'll result only in a small tweak to a specific buying pattern or a relationship. But as you carry out your risk model plans in this step, always keep in mind a clear path ahead and a clear action plan for any given outcome. Laura, I hope you were, were, were expecting an ESG question because I'm not going to visit you without posing at least one oh, ESG question. And I want to focus on uh, a phrase Peter used, which is source provenance and authenticity markers. Obviously, from the U.S. government perspective, that's critical. But it strikes me that that is also critical in the ESG world, particularly around environmental and sustainability. Does the trades... Uh, plat or framework have the flexibility to work in the ESG world as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, we really see this trades framework as applying to all areas of supply chain risk. And sort of as we spoke about, you know, this assessing current risks and the design of the framework uh, and the risk assessment methodology, again, should really align to the way that an organization understands risk and its business model. And increasingly, we're seeing that, including ESG. So ESG as a, a critical area of risk within supplier populations that, you know, we organizations are increasingly focused on in terms of making sure that their supply chain is both safe and also resilient. So we certainly see this trains framework as applicable in the ESG space. Couldn't agree with you more with regard to the comment um, and the importance of, of source provenance. Um, and, you know, I think that ultimately really kind of comes down to, you know, real good governance around the supplier population um, within an organization and, and really being able to ensure that there's good governance within suppliers themselves. So certainly a lot of ap applicability there. I agree. Laura and Peter, unfortunately, we are near the end of this episode, but I wanted to thank you both. And I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode. And I hope you will join us tomorrow for episode four, where we take up determining mitigations with Aaron Narva and Carrie Wibben. This special six-part podcast series on the trades framework has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks for listening and hope you will visit with us again 
tomorrow for our next episode. If you'd like more information on the trades framework, you can check out the show notes where I link to the trades framework in each and every episode this week. 